You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Relying on a 1999 Texas futility law, a Texas hospital told baby Emilio's mother they planned to turn off the terminally ill baby's ventilator. The mother would not consent. What is the purpose of medical treatment? When do we use it and when do we stop? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me today is Mr. John Carney. Mr. Carney is the Vice President of Aging and End of Life at the Center for Bioethics in Kansas City, Missouri. With 20 years of hospice, palliative care, and healthcare management experience, he is an expert in end-of-life advocacy, education, regulatory, and legislative issues. Mr. Carney, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. Thank you, Susan. It's good to be with you. Tell us about the Center for Practical Bioethics. Well, we've been around for about a quarter of a century. We are one of the few freestanding, independent, community-based bioethics centers in the country. There's really only a couple of us, uh, actually. We were started by a group of people here in the Kansas City area who felt it was important primarily to deal with end-of-life questions in terms of being able to do a better job than we have been in the past and uh, really kind of took its roots in that, and we've gotten into some other areas since then, but we really are known for our work in the area of -of end-of-life care. What led to your passion for end-of-life care? Well, I started basically working in the hospice field, kind of my entry into healthcare way back in the mid-'80s when hospice was just getting started, and I was just fascinated with kind of our existential angst that we have about this as just people in general. And I was really taken with the the way that people approached end-of-life questions, and especially those that chose hospice care. And it really kind of fostered in me a lot of the uh, concerns I have around spiritual dimensions of care and the psychosocial dimensions as well as the medical treatment, and just dealing with the whole issue of reality about our inevitability to die and what are the limits of medicine. So it really was around a lot of those uh, issues. I have an undergraduate in philosophy and a, and a master's in counseling, and so it's kind of always been, for me, just a an interest that I have. And really dealing with the family struggles has, has really been, the, I guess, the greatest reward. What are futility laws? Well, it's kind of a misnomer, if you will. It's really legislation that arises kind of from the inherent conflict between medical providers and families or advocacy groups, in many cases, who want to speak for those who can't speak for themselves. So the laws, and there are not a lot of them in this country, but there are a couple of states that have kind of taken a leadership role, as you mentioned earlier, Texas, in trying to help resolve and being able to help families come to grips with what really needs to happen and the medical providers giving them good advice and counsel in being able to address the concerns that these new issues raise for us, especially with the advances in technology. Describe the history of these laws. They really have only been around the particular laws dealing with the issues around feudal care. There are a lot of issues around what almost every state has issues related to what families want or what patients want to be able to do. But futility laws, there's really the state of Virginia and the state of Texas are really the only two in the country that really have anything substantive. They deal primarily with the issue of being able to resolve questions when the standard practices of trying to resolve with sitting down with families and talking with physicians cannot be resolved. And then there's kind of this appeal to another authority, either an ethics committee like in uh, Texas or other ways of resolving the conflict. What happened in the case of baby Emilio? Well, as you mentioned, the mother was really opposed to the discontinuation of treatment. In fact, continued to seek additional treatment and was at the time of his death actually trying to to find another facility that would allow them to transfer the baby and to do additional treatment. 
the questions on the provider side really dealt with the concerns, uh, pain, and the advancing illness and the effect of the advancing illness on the child physiologically. And there was a lot of concern that he was experiencing significant amounts of suffering and pain. And there was, I think, a genuine concern on the part of the hospital and the providers that they were prolonging suffering and delaying death in not a very helpful way for the child and and trying to help the mother deal with the the tragedy that she was facing more realistically. That it was really a, a very, very difficult case for everybody. And how did it end up? The baby died as a complication of the disease process while the child was still receiving life-sustaining treatment, had significant fevers and those kind of things, and the baby did die naturally from the causes of the illness, and they didn't find a, a place for the baby to go, and the baby died as a result of the really the disease process. Are there other similar cases? I think there are a lot of other types of these kinds of questions that raise, like many of them are caused by uh, trauma, accidents, and those kind of things. There was a case in actually in Missouri uh, a couple of years ago of a young boy who was in, a, in an accident. The question about brain death and that kind of thing, in a very sudden, tragic kind of accident or a gunshot wound, I believe. And those kinds of issues come up. The definitiveness about brain death is really where the question comes in. I think it's pretty clear in most state statutes when, a, when someone has died. And in the case of Emilio, that was not clear. And I think those are kinds of the naughtier questions that have to be dealt with. When it's not clear that the patient has met the legal definition of death, then then that's when the concerns really take precedence. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and joining me today is Mr. John Carney, the Vice President of Aging and End of Life at the Center for Practical Bioethics in Kansas City, Missouri, discussing futility laws. Mr. Carney, how do you respond to those who say that futility laws contradict living will and power of attorney for health care laws? That's an interesting question. I'm not sure they have to, and I'm uncertain why people would necessarily believe they must. Living will and the established health care directive statutes really are initiated to protect the interests and make sure that we honor the wishes of patients and families. Futility laws, nobody really ever prescribes a futile treatment. So it's kind of a retrospective look. I think there are there are aspects to futility laws that we want to make sure that we we don't pursue obviously if they're going to end up in a in a bad way. But I think in in most general cases people are really interested both providers and patients and families are interested in making sure that we honor the wishes of those that that we are caring for or that cannot speak for themselves and that's really what I hope all of us are really focused on. What is the AMA's position on futility laws? Well, the AMA really has no position on futility. In fact, the AMA has taken a position that futility is really a concept that is not helpful to discuss at all. The denial of treatment, they think, is, is an ethical principle that definitely needs to be addressed, as well as acceptable standards of reasonable care. So they really look at it through that lens to say that if you're doing the things that you should be doing, and you're protecting the interest of the patient, you're not required to offer them treatment that's not going to be beneficial for them. At the same time, there's no reason to really pursue a futile course of care if, in fact, you're making good decisions about the kind of care that the patient needs. Give us your best advice for medical professionals who may find themselves confronting these types of issues or see them coming down the pike. I think it's really, really important for people to communicate and to make sure that they understand, especially for healthcare providers, to understand where the patient is coming from, where the family is coming from, and what are they really looking for. 
to establish clear goals of care, to make sure that the interventions are understood, that the outcomes are clearly laid out, so that when you don't achieve that outcome or that temporary solution that you thought might be of help to the family or that intermediate step isn't achieved, what are we going to do then? So there's some place to loop back to. It's like, well, we tried this, but it didn't work. So now what are we going to do next? And to help that family move along the path so that there isn't this either or. You know, if the only outcome is he's going to die if we don't, that's not really helpful to families because everybody's going to choose to do what it needs to be done. If there's this, okay, this is what we're going to try. We're going to try it for two weeks, time-limited trials. Those are the kind of things that are going to be most helpful to patients and families to, to make sure that the clear goals and that hope and expectations are very clearly delineated, the difference between the two, and that those time-limited trials really are grounded in expectations that the physician feels good about. When is it time to call in the ethics committee? Well, when the conflict can't be resolved. That's really what, what the ethics committees are for, is to help families resolve those issues that seem to be unresolvable and to help the providers deal with their own issues and the, with the family's issues in terms of being able to, to help resolve that conflict. And that's, that's really the benefit of them. And we shouldn't be reluctant to do that. These are very, very difficult questions. Life and death questions are always you know, fraught with anxiety and emotion and everything else. And sometimes it's helpful to get that perspective of somebody who's a little bit more objective and can ask questions in a different way. So maybe earlier than later? Oh, definitely. If you're, if you're already headed down a path of you seeing that, that there's a problem related to every decision or there's this concern around too much being done or, you know, not enough being done, and those kinds of things where, you, where the physician's communication with the family or the patient is not necessarily good, then there's certainly no problem. There's, it, it's not a sign of failure. It's simply a matter of recognition that these are very, very difficult questions for everybody. And sometimes bringing in that third person is really the, what you really need. With your background and experience in palliative care and hospice, when's the best time to ask for a hospice or a palliative care consultation? As you're heading into those, no longer the, the maintenance mode, but it's more kind of we're having episodes, we need to be able to start having conversations about, okay, what happens when this, and in a theoretical, hypothetical kind of way, so it's not immediate. It's not, you know, life-threatening at the moment. It's more about, have you thought about what happens as this progresses or as you age or as the illness takes more and more of a toll on you? What is it you want? How do we want to approach these questions? Mr. Carney, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. It's been great. I'm Susan Dolan. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.